Those are good words. When you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't see his hand, trust God's heart. I'd like for you to open your Bible with me, please, to the book of Colossians, as this evening we undertake the beginning of our Christmas study for this year into one of the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, of course, many titles ascribed to him. Each of them is worth studying and understanding. There are many benefits to that kind of study. One benefit is that of greater stability. Sometimes the titles of the Lord Jesus Christ, like the one we're going to look at tonight, are jumped upon by people who twist and pervert the Scripture to mean something other than that which it says. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So it's important for us to understand exactly what the titles mean, because that then prevents us from misunderstanding and gives us greater stability in our faith. Furthermore, it gives us greater devotion to Him, because the titles help us to appreciate who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. Further, an understanding of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us greater usefulness because as we understand those titles and their meaning, we mature in our faith, and that maturation makes us more useful in the hands of God. The title we're going to look at this Christmas season is the one that is found in verse 15 of Colossians 1 where we read these words, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It is this title, Firstborn, that has attracted my interest and study in preparation for these series. Not that it's of any particular interest to you, except perhaps the sound of it. The Greek word is prototokos. And if you listen closely there, you see the word proto as part of that word. Literally, the word means the first, proto, the first to be born. The firstborn in the Hebrew family was the oldest son, who by virtue of being the firstborn son, received certain prerogatives above all of the rest of the children. For example, he received special verbal blessings from his father, And he received a double portion of the family inheritance. So that if there were six children, instead of the inheritance being divided six ways, it was divided seven ways, and the oldest son received a double portion from the rest. Greek student and professor Robert Gromacki, who teaches at Cedarville College, has written these words to help us understand this meaning. He says, in its basic meaning, firstborn meant the first one born in the family. In Near Eastern culture, the eldest son, by right of being born first, received the birthright, which entitled him to a double inheritance and family leadership upon the death of the father. The idea of supremacy soon overshadowed the concept of temporal priority. In writing further about this, Harry Ironside, who was a great Bible teacher of another generation and for many years the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago, 
wrote this, The firstborn is the heir and the preeminent one. It is important to remember that in Scripture the firstborn is not necessarily the one born first. And that is true, isn't it? The one who received the blessings of the firstborn was not always the one born first. And there are some notable examples of that in the Old Testament. In some cases, the privilege of being the firstborn was given up. In the case of Esau, for a little bit of soup. He goes on to write, Many instances might be cited where the one born first was set aside, was set to one side, and the right of the firstborn given to another. One only needs to mention the cases of Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, Reuben and Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, to which many more might be added. The first man is set aside and the second man is acknowledged as the firstborn. And so, and I think this is an important point, Adam and all his race are set aside as unfit to retain authority over the world in order that Christ, the second man, the Lord from heaven, might be acknowledged as the firstborn. Jesus is the last Adam, as he is called in 1 Corinthians 15, but he holds the place of the firstborn. And that is why the title is ascribed to him here. It is this title of preeminence and sovereignty that is given to him in Colossians 1 and in several other contexts of the New Testament. Here the focus is upon his creative work as the firstborn. Notice that the apostle calls him the firstborn of all creation. Now the connection of firstborn with creation has given rise to some false definitions of what this word means. A teacher in the 4th century by the name of Arius claimed that firstborn meant that Jesus was the first of all of the created things of God. That he was the firstborn in that sense. That of all of the creation, he was the first thing created. And there were many who followed after him. However, the church, in gathering in a great council, concluded together that, in fact, Arius was a heretic and a false teacher. Now, we might think that that teaching was buried back in the 4th century, but in fact it was resurrected about a hundred years ago, or a little more, by the Jehovah's Witnesses, who likewise still today claim that Jesus is the firstborn in the sense that he is the first of all of the created things of God. And that is a lie. That is not the meaning of firstborn. What does it mean when it says that he is the firstborn of all creation? Well, you will notice if you look at the text here, beginning in verse 15, which we'll read in just a moment, there are five statements made about Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation. It says, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now we'll go into verse 18 next week, the Lord willing. But notice the first statement made about Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation. It says, by him, 
verse 16, all things were created. Actually, the preposition in the New American Standard translated by is in, E-N, as we would bring it into the English. It really means this, all things were created with reference to Jesus Christ in his domain, as it were, in his sphere of activity. All things were created with reference to Christ. We might illustrate it this way. When a building is being constructed, the most important brick or stone or block to be put into that building is the first one. Because that first one becomes the cornerstone of the building. Because of the way that it is laid, it becomes the source of all of the angles and all of the lines of the rest of the building. It is the preeminent block, as it were, in the building. And that is the sense here when it says, in him, or with reference to Christ as the cornerstone, everything else was created. The Gnostics, who were some false teachers that were prevalent in the church in the day when Paul wrote this letter, taught that creation came about as a result of a series of angelic beings. Because God, in their understanding, could never create something material because they believed in dualism, spiritual was good and that which is material was always evil, they said, therefore, the spiritual God could not create the material which is uh, evil. And so they created this system of emanations from God, these spirit beings that were innumerable between God, the highest form of spirit, and the material world. And they said that God created through all of these many multitudes and myriads of angels that were between him and creation. However, the Apostle Paul says, not at all, not at all. For it was with reference to Jesus Christ that everything was created. Not many beings between God and creation, but one person in whom all things were created. One commentator by the name of Lightfoot says that all laws and purposes guiding and governing creation reside in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you want to talk about the law of gravity or any of the other laws of physics? They all reside in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that being the case, is it any wonder that he could control the wind and the waves? For the laws that govern the winds or the waves all reside in him. And it is but a small thing for him to bring in other laws that would supersede the natural laws so that he could control the wind and waves. It is nothing for him to reverse and to heal disease. Or for that matter, even to raise the dead. You see, because all of the laws that govern and guide creation find their focus and their residence in him. It says that everything was created with reference to Christ. In every region, he talks about heaven and earth. 
in every realm, the visible and the invisible. And he talks here about thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities. These are words that refer to angelic creatures. He says, every region, every realm, every rank of the angelic beings, all of them are a part of those things that were created with reference to Jesus Christ. In him, all things were created. Now notice with me a second of the statements that uh, help us understand what it means when it speaks of Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation. It says, all things have been created by him, at the end of verse 16. All things have been created by him. Again, the preposition is very important. Here it is the word that means through, dia, through. He is the instrument through whom the creation took place. He is the agent of creation. It is true, of course, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit each had a part in creation. We see that suggested even in the first verse of the Bible, where it says, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. The word Elohim, that name for God, has a plural ending in the Hebrew, meaning not only that it's a majestic name, but also suggesting a plurality in this oneness of God, Elohim. And as the scripture unfolds, it tells us that God the Father is the source of all creation. God the Son is the agent by whom creation came to be. And the Holy Spirit is the one who preserves it. All things have been created by him. Turn over with me to John chapter 1 and verse 3. This was a text that we looked at more thoroughly last Christmas season. But notice that John says essentially the same thing that Paul has asserted in verse 3, John 1, 3. All things came into being by him, through him. Nothing came into being, he says, except that it came by him, by Jesus Christ. One more writer of the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, the first chapter again, Hebrews 1 and verse 2. Well, let's get the context. Verse 1 says, God, who after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also... He made the world. Notice again, through whom he made the world. The world, not only in the sense of, uh, of its material existence, but in the sense of its historic ages. All of it came into being by him. Now let's go back again to Colossians. We see here Paul unfolding to us the majesty of Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation. The next statement is found right at the end of verse 16. All things have been created for him. Now please understand that prepositions are not unimportant. Some of you high schoolers 
and maybe some of you in junior high are going through the parts of speech and you labor trying to understand what a subject is and what a verb is and a direct object and an indirect object and all the other parts of speech. One of the parts of speech, at least back in the old days, probably still is, is called a preposition. Prepositions are important. They are small little words, but even these words are important. And it says here that all things have been created for him. The, the picture in this preposition is a movement. Uh, it's toward him. All things have been created unto him or in that direction of him. It says that Jesus Christ is not only the agent of creation, but he is the goal or the purpose of creation. It all points to him. And it only finds meaning when he is at the center of creation. The glory for creation is his. It does not belong to the angels of the Gnostics and their false teaching. The glory that we see around us is not because of Mother Nature, whether she's in a good mood or a bad mood, it makes no difference. It's not Mother Nature. What we see around us is not the result of evolution's natural process. One of my favorite programs on Sunday evening is Nature on Channel 2. I enjoy watching just to see the unusual things about nature that they find. How many of you watch that on Sunday evenings? Quite a few of you. But of course, the underlying philosophy of the whole program is that evolution has produced this. I think it was last Sunday night they were talking about geese, wasn't it? And how geese find their direction, at least the part of it that I saw was about that. And the unusual ability that has been placed into these creatures to be able to fly at night by use of the stars and through clouds still going in the right direction because of the magnetism of the earth. I just wonder how many of those poor creatures got lost before evolution got that through to their little brains. <laughs> it is marvelous what God has done in creation. All things have been created for him. It's not evolution that's done it. It's not the angels of Gnosticism. It's not Mother Nature. It's Jesus Christ. And in fact, the very tense of this verb, it, it says here, all things have been created for him. And the idea is not only have they been created, but today they are still ongoing for him. Completion is, a creation rather, is a completed act but the results of it permanently stand as a testimony to the Creator, Jesus Christ. But there is another thought that is intertwined here with this particular preposition. It means that the creation has an encounter one day with Jesus Christ. That it must give an account to Jesus Christ as the judge Commentator William Hendrickson writes, All creatures without any exception whatever must contribute glory to Christ and serve his purposes. And one day those 
of us who are morally responsible will stand before Jesus Christ to give account of ourselves because we are a part of creation and we are created for him. And we are moving in that direction. There is no way for us to avoid it. There is no way for us to turn around the direction of all of creation. It's moving to his throne. And one day all creation will give an account to him. Now there's a fourth statement that is made by the apostle in verse 17. It says that he himself, Christ, is before all things. Notice it doesn't really say he was before all things. That would be true in itself. But it goes beyond that. It says he is before all things. This is not only a statement about his pre-existence before there was anything created. But because of the tense of the verb, present tense, he is, it is a statement that he eternally pre-existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God the Son. Before time and space came into being, before there was any matter, he is, not just was, he is. That's the real point, too, of John 8, verse 58. And it's my favorite verse when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on the door I've told you before my little process with them. I asked them if they believe that Jesus Christ is a good man, that he would ever lie to us. And of course, they say as they would teach, no, he was a good man, a perfect man. I say, can we believe everything that he would say? I say, well, of course we can. And I said, well, remember that he said, before Abraham was, I am. Not just I was before Abraham, but I am. And I said, well, so what? And I said, well, do you understand that I am is the very name Jehovah that you claim to be witnessing for? Jesus was claiming there to be Jehovah, God come in the flesh. Oh, no, no, that couldn't be. He's the first of all created things. And then I point them to that other verse in the context that says, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. That's not one of their favorite verses. (laughs) Jesus claimed to be the eternal Jehovah, the I am that I am, that revealed himself to Moses in the Old Testament. And just as Paul says here, he is before all things. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am And, of course, the Jews understood exactly what he was claiming because at that point they picked up rocks to stone him for blasphemy. So if the Jehovah's Witnesses have a hard time understanding what Jesus meant, the Jews of that day had no misunderstanding of his claim. This whole idea of his eternal preexistence is an attribute of deity alone. He is God. Then there is one final statement that is made in our text tonight regarding Jesus Christ as the firstborn of all creation. And it says, in him all things hold together. In him all things cohere. He is that glue, if you please, that holds the creation 
together. He is its sustenance, and uh, he is the preserver of all that he made. He is the one who holds the atom together with its parts. It is his power. And should he at any moment decide to release it, everything that is made would go to pieces. He is the one in whom it holds together. Hebrews 1.3 says, Upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things. The word there is to carry. It means that he carries everything forward on its appointed course. Not only does he hold the material universe together, but all of history and all of its ages as they unfold are carried forward by the power of Jesus Christ. All things hold together in him. Now having said these things about Jesus Christ, the firstborn, what, what kind of application can we make of this in our lives? Let me just point out two or three things before we go on our way. First of all, nothing in creation is of itself evil. Except, of course, that which became evil after its creation by rebellion. But nothing in all of creation is evil in and of itself. It can be used for evil. But it's not evil in and of itself. The Gnostics, of course, taught that Everything is evil, including our bodies. And to them, the whole idea of a resurrection body was uh, unthinkable. The whole idea is to get rid of the body. It's evil. Well, the whole idea in the Christian resurrection is that the body will come together, a new body. But it will be a body, a material body, supernatural, but material, real, tangible. Nothing is evil in all of creation. And God uses it all to advance his good and holy purposes, even that which has become evil. God employs even Satan and his whole realm ultimately to bring about his purposes. Satan is in rebellion. There is a limited sense in which he has his way and he charts his course for the world. But ultimately, even all of his activity will bring about the purpose of God. Secondly, I see as a result of this teaching that despite sin's presence and its corruption, creation is to be enjoyed, employed rather, for God's glory and gratefully enjoyed by his people. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6 for just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6 comes after Thessalonians, doesn't it? Yes, here it is. Sometimes these books change places in my Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God intends for us to employ creation for his glory and to enjoy it ourselves. That's why he's given it to us. And so there are some who may not eat certain foods for health reasons. That's fine. 
And there may be good reason for that, but there's not a spiritual reason for it. If you choose not to eat ham, let it not be because of what Leviticus or one of the Old Testament books says. Let it be for some other more mundane reason. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. We can truly sing, this is my father's world. Yes, Uh, Satan now is the usurper. Yes, he has his way in some limited sense in the world, but this is our father's world. And it all points to him and brings glory to him. And he has given us the privilege of enjoying it. Finally, I want to say this evening that the dignity and the majesty of Jesus Christ is unique. The dignity, the majesty of Jesus Christ as the firstborn of God are unique. Being eternally God the Son, he is also by his incarnation the only begotten Son of God. We are at this season of the year remembering his incarnation, that the reason for the season is the celebration of the truth that this one who is the firstborn of all creation is also come into the world to be our Savior. This one who is supreme and preeminent in his glory stepped from his throne in heaven and stooped to our place on the earth that he might save us and raise us to one day share the throne of his glory with him. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus Christ who is the firstborn of all creation. Would you bow with me please in prayer? Father, we thank you for Jesus for who he is and what he's done and for your revealing him to us in the names and titles that are ascribed to him. I bless you that he is the firstborn of all creation, that he has the place of supremacy, that his rank is a preeminent one. And tonight we worship you, Lord Jesus, and we bring our hearts to quiet yieldedness to to your purpose and your will in our being in existence. Fulfill your purpose in us, we pray, and use us for your glory. Amen.